what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of The Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents as well as caring for ourselves. I'm Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP, Adult Children of Aging Parents. In this podcast, we're talking about person-centered planning and care. Dr. Jane Everson, my interviewee, is a project principal investigator at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Everson's PhD is in urban services from Virginia Commonwealth University, and her undergraduate and graduate work were in special education and counseling. Her work in the disabilities arena has lent itself well to her role as the caregiver and advocate for her parents as they have dealt with issues related to aging. Full transparency, though, Dr. Everson joined me in the early days of ACAP, and together we put in place all the details to help ACAP grow beyond a small local effort in Hickory, North Carolina. Jane and I transitioned Adult Children of Aging Parents, the local original effort, into ACAP Community, the nonprofit we are today. In fact, Jane and I began ACAP Podcasts together in 2015, so if you listen to some of the earlier podcasts, you'll hear both of us. I will always credit Jane not only with being my friend, but providing much of the foundation that without question has provided the base on which ACAP has grown into what we are today. So Jane, thank you so much for the many gifts that you have brought to ACAP through the years and certainly for being part of a podcast again. Oh, thank you for having me, Francis. And that was a lovely, unexpected introduction. (laughs) Well, I have to say more than just your name on this, <laughs> given who you are relative to ACAP. <laughs> okay, we have talked, you and I have talked through the years about person-centered planning, but it always was intriguing and something that I felt like really did make sense for people to know about, um, because it can be done on so many different levels and, and in so many different situations. So let's start, let's start at the beginning, <laughs> a very good place to start, huh? Let's talk with, let, let's help people understand what is person-centered planning? Sure. Well, as, as you mentioned, I spent um, 35 years working professionally as an advocate for people with disabilities, their families, and other caregivers. As a result of that work, I've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work in group residential settings for people, as well as what works and what doesn't work with the medical model of service delivery. And likewise, with the attitudinal barriers that we have in society, all of these things, group residential settings, the medical model, attitudinal barriers, they're all things that can and usually do restrict and disrespect people by not treating them as individuals. As I became more involved with caregiving for my parents and other family members over the last 10 years, I've come to believe that there are many parallels to service barriers for people with developmental disabilities. And you and I have talked about that a lot. And they're very similar to the barriers that people experience because they're aging. The bottom line is that we all need to be respected and we all need to be understood as individuals in order to have the best quality of life that we can. Well, person-centered planning is a service planning model, but it's also a service delivery model. And it emerged in 
the United States, Canada, and Europe in the 1970s and 1980s, and it's still going very strong today. I believe that person-centered planning can and arguably should be applied pro forma to aging services as well. So to get down to the basics, I think it would be useful to think of person-centered planning as having two components. The first are philosophical underpinnings, and the second are service and support tools. So let's begin with the philosophical underpinnings, because arguably that's the most important. Person-centered planning has at least three important tenets. The first is that everyone, every one of us, has a unique story to tell. The second is that everyone has unique preferences or unique likes and dislikes, if you will. And the third tenet is that everyone has unique strengths as well as deficits. So if we keep these three tenets in place, then person-centered planning uses some relatively simple tools or strategies to more fully include the individual whose life is being planned, and to make the supports around that person's more unique history, preferences, and strengths. So sort of in a, in a nutshell, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that basically person-centered planning is sort of what it says. It really is understanding that individual unique person so that we can make sure that all the services, everything that is going to be coming around that person really fit. Yes, exactly. It, it would essentially say that you wouldn't place a person with dementia in a dementia unit just because they have dementia. Instead, you would look at that person's background, their preferences, and their unique strengths and decide not only which dementia unit might be more appropriate, but how the services might be planned around that individual within that unit. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So, uh, so, so, person-centered so person planning can be um, really useful to adult care, adult child caregivers even though it is primarily for the aging person. It helps us have a, um, a stronger and more respected voice in planning the care and supports. So you can use person-centered planning within an individual's home, within their private residence where they choose to live, but it can also be used within group settings such as assisted living and skilled nursing facilities. When we use person-centered planning, it's a way of helping staff get to know people better and, more importantly, to see and treat them as individuals. So staff and family members can use person-centered planning information to plan preferred leisure activities, provide menu choices, room decor, and anything else that can be individualized within a person's life. I think you can also use the information in memory care and Alzheimer's units uh, with anybody who might have some behavioral challenges to help identify incentives, or we might call them reinforcement, for completing non-preferred activities. Um, tasks that are sometimes difficult for people, such as bathing or dressing or completing physical therapy routines. In addition, when person-centered planning is used early in the caregiving journey, it might also be useful in helping to choose caregivers whose characteristics better match the individual and even choosing residential facilities that are a better fit with the person's experiences and preference. Sure, sure. I think it's also important to um, acknowledge that there is research on this. The research is clear among people with developmental disabilities and it's just beginning to emerge with people who are aging. But the bottom line is that any attempt to get to know a person, to truly individualize a person's services, is going to improve the person's day and their overall quality of life. And as you and I know as caregivers, when our parents are happier, we're going to be happier also. And the caregivers are going to ha be happier. So it's really a win-win for everyone. Right, right, so right. I think person-centered planning is one small but very powerful way of individualizing a person's services 
within what are frequently very system-centered facilities and programs. You know, as you're saying all of that, two things keep going through my mind. One is that we, even we as adult children, you know, the most point person, the most intimate person in terms of someone's life outside of a spouse or partner, that, that there are things that we don't know about our mom and dad or Absolutely. loved one. And it's really to our benefit to understand them better. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I've had conversations over the years and, you know, I really thought I knew absolutely every one <laughs> of my mother's stories <laughs> until she passed. And then I realized, oh, I, I never really understood X, uh, you know, yeah. and so I, I think about person-centered planning and thinking just the exercise, if you will, of going through it can be so incredibly um, uh, life-giving and yeah. to both, yeah. to both the the um, the older adult as well as the caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing magic about it, but the idea of actually sitting and listening, asking questions, recording stories, whether you record them auditorially or on paper, is so powerful for the person who's telling their story, but it's equally powerful for the caregivers, whether they're paid or non-paid. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a minute ago, you you were talking about um, that if someone, if a loved one goes into a facility, whatever that is, assisted living or memory care or, or skill care, anything, you know, how person-centered planning can be tailored to that person. And I remember that my, my mother-in-law, my husband's mother, went into a facility literally just weeks before she passed, but she was still eating fine. And um, she had some condition, high blood pressure or whatever. And I remember that the nursing home said um, that the, that they had restricted her eating pork or pork chops. And, and my husband and his, and his siblings, his sisters were like, are you kidding? That is our mother's favorite food. No, she's 96. No, or 94, I guess at that yeah, point. Yeah. No, give her her pork. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in the disability field, we call that the dignity of risk, that the person has the dignity to make some decisions that may have some risk involved with them. But if they enhance the person's quality of life, that is of the utmost importance. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So so this sounds sometimes a little bit complicated, um, and, and I, you know, my sense is that it probably could, could move on very different levels, but can anyone do person-centered planning or do you really need special training mm-hmm. to do that? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And it's an excellent point that person-centered planning ranges from some very simple tools to some more complex tools. But I think the most important thing is to begin with that philosophy and those tenets that I mentioned earlier. If you truly believe that everyone has a unique story and that everyone has unique preferences and that everyone has unique strengths, that's three quarters of the work in doing person-centered planning. You have to believe that. If you don't truly believe that, if you come from a purely system-centered perspective, you may be an excellent caregiver, but you're not going to be a good person-centered planning facilitator. So I want to make sure that everyone understands philosophy is the primary motivation behind doing this well. Now, when you have those beliefs and when you truly believe that, I want to talk about two tools. That's not everything there is in person-centered planning, but it's two of the important tools that I think anybody can use with minimal training. The first tool is something that's called a circle of support. And a circle of support is more than a team. It is literally a group of people who come together because they love and care about and support the individual, in this case, your aging parent. It's made up of people who know, love, and are involved in the aging person's life. 
for example, that might be family members, it might be friends, neighbors, church members, anyone who knows that person. Typically, circle members do not include people who are paid to be in the aging person's life. Now, we all know there are some people who have paid caregivers who truly are friends, but there is a difference in the relationship when you are paid to be in someone's life and when you come into that person's life out of love and caring. So the emphasis here is on people who choose to be in your life. Now, the purpose of a circle is to ensure that daily caregivers truly know a person and incorporate what they know to be unique in that person's daily routines. A circle of support is um, not necessarily a group of people who meet regularly. They're not an interdisciplinary team or a multidisciplinary disciplinary team. They don't develop a plan of care. They may come together around the person's birthday or around a celebration like the holidays at Christmas or Thanksgiving, or they may just be people who come and go from a person's life. But as the facilitator of person-centered planning, and this is typically going to fall to a family member, the adult child, it is important to identify those people and know who they are. Now, we all know that as we age, we often lose many of these people, and it's difficult for us to identify circle members. Thus, I always encourage adult child caregivers to begin thinking about circle members early in their caregiving journeys and to update names annually in a list or chart. So when you have the people who you think are important who can contribute to your parents' caregiving and overall quality of life, the next step is to involve them in your person's life, in your adult, in your aging parent's life. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of an example of how I've done this informally with my own mother. So my mother is 90 years old, and she still lives alone without any paid caregivers. And this is probably more of a challenge for me than it is for her. So I have made a list of people in her life, notes on how they can help, and I regularly reach out to each of them. So with my mother, we do not come together as a circle of support around her birthday or any other events, but I have their names all charted out and I know who to call and when to call them for certain things. So let me give you an example. First of all, family, obviously important. My brother lives out of state, but he has an MBA and he has a gift for attention to detail. So I have given up much of my role in planning legal and financial paperwork. It is in some ways more difficult for me to give that responsibility to him, but in other ways it's easier and it allows him to be a part of her circle without physically being there. My mother also has three nephews who live out of state who she is very close to and two grandchildren who live out of state who she's also very close to. Now, my mother loves talking on the telephone, but she absolutely loathes reaching out and making the phone call herself. So I have given the nephews and grandchildren a schedule to follow. So that they make phone calls to my mother when I'm working or traveling and and I'm unable to be physically with her. Now, my mother has not caught on to this, but everyone has been very good at calling according to their schedule so that my mother gets a phone call nearly every day of the week. And that way she doesn't have to reach out. People don't have to worry about is it convenient to call her or so forth. What a great idea. What a great idea. And, you know, it's, I think it's really helpful for the other people because they know that the phone call is appreciated. They have a regular schedule, so they don't have to worry about have I called her or have I not called her. And my mother literally has not caught on to this. Yeah, well, and so many, so often people want to know and they ask, how can I help? Yeah. And that is a very specific way that they can help. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing that I do is with those who, particularly those who I am also close to, I'll chat with them. Might be by phone call, might be by email or text. And I'll say, when you talked to my mother yesterday or last week, how did she sound to you? 
Now, as you and uh, many other daughters know, mothers are often more temperamental with us than they are with other family members. So I get, a, I think, a more honest perspective of how my mother is really doing, or maybe I should say a more balanced perspective, when I talk to the people who have talked to her by phone, because it's just a different conversation than she has with me. Well, and Jane, part of what you also are saying is that we, as the adult child, don't have to do it all. Yeah. And that is a huge yeah. part of, yeah. of of this whole process. Yeah, absolutely. Now, closer to home, my mother has also become um, conversant with two people at church. Now, she's only lived in this community for seven years, so she's not really close friends with them, but there's some connection that I've identified with those two people. So I've begun at church to take a back seat and let her sit with those individuals, and I observe what's going on. And um, they engage her in conversation, and so I think of these people as, as um, kind of cheerleaders. They're there to um, help in whatever way they can. And I've, I've used them to kind of, um, kind of help me again assess how she's doing, but also take them to heart when they say things like, how can I help? What can I do? So I've been known to say, well, can you pick her up for church next week? Because I'm going to be reading and it's difficult for me to manage both. Or to say, can you walk her to the um, event room and help her get her lunch today? And people have always been really willing to do that. But they need to know exactly what it is that you want them to do. And then along with um, these individuals, my mother has a lawn care person who is just a lovely man, and he comes every week to mow her lawn. And I have said to him, would you mind just knocking on the door when you're finished, saying hello to my mother and see how she's doing? Very simply, five or 10 minutes out of his life, all he needed to know was, sure, I'd be glad to do that instead of just getting on the lawnmower, getting in your track and leaving. So it's another little contact that she has. And then, of course, I also have people like you, Francis, and others who I kind of consider my mother's warriors. They are people who I know I can call on, not only in emergencies, but also if I just need to identify some um, some services, some resources that maybe I'm just feeling overwhelmed and I don't want to make that extra phone call or I don't want to look in a directory, I can go right to somebody who knows and get them to help me. And then there are other people that we we sometimes may overlook, but if we take that extra moment, my mother has, uh, my mother loves to read and she loves to go to the library. And somehow she's connected with one librarian there who will always set aside books for her. Well, it's so simple for me now to just step back and ask my mother to go up to the desk and ask the man, what have you put aside for me today? Or what authors are you recommending? Um, there's also a waiter at her favorite restaurant who somehow, again, is connected with her. And if we go to that restaurant on the days that he works, I will say, can we sit in his section? And he will always sit down and talk to my mother for four or five minutes. These are such simple things to do, but those support people can make such a big difference in a person's life as we age and we become increasingly isolated. So in the, the yeah. I'm sorry, as you're talking, I'm getting this picture that so often we overlook in the midst of the go, go, go and always on with our loved one. Um, sometimes it's hard to even step back and think about who are those people? Yeah. You know, like you're saying, the the serve the server at the restaurant, the lawn person, the uh, you know, the the intentional phone calls and the scheduling mm-hmm. of the phone calls. It's those kinds of things of just even thinking about who are the people that interface with our loved one, with our loved one, not us. That's a whole separate, right. that's a whole separate topic. Uh, right. But but the people who interact with our loved one to be able to help them feel like they are still very, very much a part of this world and that they are that they are interesting 
and that people want to engage with them. And that's so important. It is. It absolutely is. And when we think of these people, just the idea of thinking of them as a circle of support gives me this idea of people who wrap their arms around the aging person, but also have that extra arm to wrap around you as the adult child caregiver as well. And it, it's an, it, behooves us to identify those people and to keep identifying and keep building those connections because they help not only our parent, but they also help us as well. And I found that most of those people are out there and willing to help. We just have to identify them and encourage them and give them a role to play. Right. So that's the circle of support. And that's, that's the first simple, but, but I think important tool The second person-centered tool that I think we can use with our adult parents are something called maps. Maps are visual summaries of information. And instead of them being charts or tables or lists, they are large pieces of poster paper that we use graphics and colors, and we might use photographs. We might even cut things out of magazines in order to illustrate aspects of a person's life. With person-centered planning and our aging parents, I like to use three different kinds of maps. One is the circle of support map, and that might include taking the person's um, the person's circle, the names of the people that we've identified, and we actually put them in a map with photographs and names and contact information. And instead of just putting it in your phone or putting it in a file paper, you're putting it on a big chart paper and having it available so that the person and the caregiver know who all these individuals are. And then the second maps that we're going to talk about are a story map and a preferences map. And so what I'm, what I'm thinking is, particularly if someone is in, is in a residential community, um, that in their room, there could be these big maps on the wall, right? Yeah, <coughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and let me talk a little bit more about what they are, okay. and then I'll talk a little bit about how they might be used exactly like okay. that. So a, a, sto- <laughs> a story map, you might also hear it called a background map or a history map. I personally like calling it a story map, but it's a chronological summary of a person's life. But importantly, it's told by the person him or herself. So as you were saying with your mom, this would be your mom telling her story or my mother telling her story, not you or the caregivers, or it's not a medical history. It's what your mom or my mom think is important. And for people as they age, and particularly as they experience perhaps some memory problems or some uh, articulation or communication problems, it certainly can be supplemented by people who are in the circle of support, hence the reason we want to have those people in your life. So to develop any of the maps, but specifically the, the history map or the story map, All you need is a big piece of poster board and some colorful markers. You begin by drawing a line um, across the sheet of paper, and it can be a straight line that goes parallel or perpendicular. I sometimes like to use a curvy line because most of our our life stories don't go in a straight line but have (laughs) jigs and jags. And then you just begin by asking the person to tell their story. And it's important that you ask probing questions and that you're a good listener. There aren't any specific questions to ask, but there are some that might be useful. So just beginning with where were you born? How many siblings did you have? And when were they born? Tell me about your earliest memories. What was your childhood like? What was school like? Whatever will get the person talking about what was important to them from their perspective. Now, I will note here that I think a lot of adult children will also find it useful, I think, to audio tape this because it's a way that you get a living record of the person's story. As the person, yeah, go ahead. And how wonderful, sorry, how wonderful to have their voice. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So as the person talks, the facilitator adds names, dates, quotes, anything to the map that illustrates the person's life story. Uh, typically, you use something like blue or green to illustrate positive events and red to illustrate something negative. Although I will note that in, in some cultures, the Asian culture, red is a very positive color and blue and green might be better. So sometimes I begin by asking, what's your favorite color? And I use the favorite color to use positive events and then use red or some other color to illustrate the negative events. As the person talks, you, you keep going throughout the person's life. Tell me about high school. What was your first job? Uh, tell me about your spouse, your children. Tell me about your career, or if the person was a homemaker, how they spent their days. What are your favorite holidays, family traditions, hobbies, vacation? And what's on your bucket list? What would you like to do? As I said earlier, you don't need special training to develop these maps, but especially with the story map, it is helpful for the facilitator to know the person well enough to know that there might be some triggers. There might be some questions to ask and to be able to anticipate and manage responses to traumatic life events. For example, if the person lost a spouse or a family member at an early age or unexpectedly, if they experienced a divorce, uh, a miscarriage, a job loss, a military service accident, or uh, chronic medical conditions, you'd want to know these and you'd want to be sensitive to them. doesn't mean you don't talk about them, but the facilitator needs to be comfortable responding to the person when they talk about this. Um, so the important thing is you've got to be able to ask questions, listen to the person, and then summarize what they say on this graphic map. And as I noted, for a person who might have some memory or communication issues, it may be helpful to have one or more of the circle members present and to add detail and ask questions. Once the map is developed, um, I think they should be hung in the person's room, as you said. Hang it over the person's bed if they're in skilled nursing. Hang it in their kitchen if they're in an apartment. I also think it's very important to actually have it um, copied and shrunk at an office supply store so that it can be added to a person's records and file folders because it looks very different than what you're going to see in a medical history. And people are going to be drawn to it just because it looks different. Let me ask you a question because I, I'm a very visual person, as you know. So I, you know, when I hear map and I hear big poster board and, and those kinds of things, I start getting a picture of what that might look like. I understand I can get a picture of the line, the, someone's life and what happened when, but how would you do that for that person's story mm -hmm. or preferences? What does that look like? Well, specifically with, um, we'll, we'll talk about the story first. Um, I mean, you could actually take a, a photograph of the person's um, birthplace or um, a picture of them when they were born or a picture of them when they were a child and actually um, use glue to glue that to the story if, if you thought that was important and would be helpful. Um, you could put a, a a picture of their siblings. You could put a picture of their school photograph, a picture of their spouse or children, a picture of them celebrating Christmas. I like using photographs whenever possible. That, of course, requires a little bit more uh, pre-planning. But some people uh, just write words or um, use stick drawings to do things. The The idea behind doing the map on a large piece of paper is that it does allow everyone to actually see it. It is very visual. It's not someone taking a record on a piece of paper and you wondering what it is they're writing down. You're actually seeing it. So it does encourage participation. Accuracy is frankly less important than the fact that it is the person's story. <laughs> right, right. But but so each of these still sort of 
sort of emanate from a line, whether that's yes. whether that is a straight line or whether that's a curved line. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That was the piece that I was like, I'm not quite sure how that it's all gets plotted. Yeah. And so, as and know. as the person is uh, is plotting it, you would start at one down the line with their birth and their early childhood, and as they move along, you would get closer and closer to the end of the line, if you will, and start adding more detail about their older life. Um, got yeah, good, good question. So a preferences map, um, or you might call this a, a, a likes and dislikes map, is very similar. Again, you use a large piece of poster board, and um, you simply make two columns, and you label one column likes and the other column dislikes. And using the person, again, to drive the conversation as much as possible, ask questions and begin listening the person's unique likes and dislikes. Again, using color, you could here also use photographs, whatever captures for that person what is important. What I think is really important here is that you delve as deeply as possible into the detail of what a person likes and dislikes. For example, with my mother, a preferences map would list very specifically on things she likes as coffee with cream for breakfast, hamburgers with lots and lots of onion, and very <laughs> hot soup. Now, those are very detailed because my mother does not like lettuce and tomato and cheese on her hamburgers. So the simple fact of knowing that she likes lots of onion is very important. Knowing that she likes hot soup is very important. And does uh, does the next part after that hamburger is that uh, she prefers certs versus something else? <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah, that would be, be yes, caregiver. probably that, be. that would be for the caregiver, not for for her. That's right. <laughs> the other thing that would be on likes for my mother is she likes to have a glass of wine in the afternoon. Now. Medically speaking, there's no reason she can't. As she's gotten older, I would say her glass of wine has gone from six ounces to about two ounces. But the fact that she has a small glass of wine in the afternoon is very important to her. She also loves cats. And when she can't be around cats at some point, I will know that watching cat videos and watching things on YouTube about cats is just as important to her as actually having a cat on her life, her lap. She loves Judge Judy. She loves Law and Order on TV. She loves word search puzzles. She loves mystery novels. She loves having fresh flowers in a vase. And she has to absolutely have something sweet to eat to begin the day and end the day. Separated at birth. That's right. <laughs> now, equally important here are dislikes. My mother despises anything vanilla or white chocolate. She absolutely hates omelets. She despises romance novels. She does not like peppermint, carbonated drinks. She does not want to play cards. She does not like being outside in the sunshine. She hates the color blue. And she does not like people who talk a lot. Now, that's really important to know all of those things. Because I've had, for example, people say to me, oh, your mother needs a companion caregiver to spend time with her during the day. Now, I know that my mother would despise having someone come in who talked to her a great deal. I also know that if anybody ever gave her a gift that was blue, like a blue scarf or a blue shawl, she would absolutely hate it. Now, those things may seem really small, but by golly, the older we get and the smaller our life becomes, the more important some of those things can really be and to attend to. And so when you talked about certs after her eating onion, we now know it cannot be peppermint. It would have to be spearmint. <laughs> <laughs> but those kinds of things are really important. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely, they are important. Number for us as family members to know, because we may not even know. But my goodness, particularly for a paid yes. professional, yes, whether it's coming into the home or in a facility, yes. Yeah. Yes. In a, in a residential. Yes, community. absolutely. And having that information 
can, in very small but meaningful ways, enable a caregiver to make some very simple decisions about how to serve a person, what to serve a person, what to give them, what to keep away from them. I keep picturing my mother being in a facility and someone trying to get her to go play cards or bingo. It would be guaranteed to cause a major behavior problem because she absolutely does not like them. Nor if you wheeled her outside and set her in the sunshine, would it be a very good day for her. So knowing those things, as simple as they are, are really, really important to me and to her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, because I think of how many people, you know, again, you know, at any point along the along their journey of aging, in this case of aging, you know, find themselves not not happy. And all of the fallout, all of the things that occur from that, just because something has happened, and often it's sort of a domino effect, or it builds on one thing builds on another, and then you get to a point that there is there is absolutely nothing that is going to be right in that person's life and how sad that is. And particularly when it could be prevented or that good can be facilitated just by these simple preferences or objections. Yeah, absolutely. So, So you asked earlier about how they could be used with caregivers and their family members once you've developed the maps, because we certainly don't want to just develop the maps and hang them on the wall and then not pay any attention to them. So, um, I think that it's important that we acknowledge that most facilities, whether they're assisted living or skilled nursing or memory care or CCRCs, they are by definition systems-centered. They may tell you they're family-centered, they may claim to be person-centered, but the bottom line is they're funded as medical facilities to provide care and people are expected to fit into that system, whatever it might be. By having these maps and by adopting those tenets of person-centered planning, the unique history, the unique preferences, and the the, the idea that people have more strengths than they do deficits, we can go into facilities and we can begin to ask some more difficult questions about when you tell me you're person-centered, you're family-centered, what exactly do you mean? How do you staff? How do you prepare meals? What do you allow with, me- with room decor and leisure activities that really makes you person-centered? So then when we have that mindset and we have these maps, then we can go in and do things with them. So the circle of support map, as I said, um, can include photographs, contact information, ideas about how the aging person knows that individual. You can hang it on the wall. And particularly with people who uh, may be isolated or people who have some dementia or memory care, you can actually use them to stimulate discussion. Tell me about your daughter. Tell me about your cousin. Tell me about this person you go to church with. Tell me a story about them. It gets the conversations going and reminds the person and the caregivers that the individual has a story, that they have experiences, they have people in their lives, even if they're not physically present at that time. Likewise, the story map can be used by caregivers, again, to stimulate stories. Caregivers can get people talking about their history. But I think the most important thing is it enables caregivers to see that person as having a unique story and history. I remember when my father was in skilled nursing, we put um, a very simple story map over his bed. And it talked about him being born in West Virginia, being born um, on a farm where his father was a coal miner, being the youngest of 11 children. And I believe caregivers who came in who were in their 20s and 30s, it helped to see him as someone who was different from them, had a different story to tell, but they could then ask him some stories Um, One of the things my father loved was wearing hats, like baseball hats. 
So when he was in skilled nursing, we brought in 15 or 20 of them and he could wear a different hat every day. And it might say West Virginia University, or it might say, I don't know, I'm a deer hunter or something, but it would allow caregivers to comment on why he chose that hat, why he was wearing it that day. Now that's something very small that fits within a system-centered approach. It didn't require any additional funding, any additional services, but it did give the caregivers something to talk about that was very personal and unique to my father. And, and I think that's really important. And then the preferences map, perhaps this is one of the most powerful because it can be used in small but very important ways to plan a person's menus and leisure time so that, um, so that for example, nobody's going to bring my mother a hamburger with, with ketchup and mustard on it if they're following that. They're not even going to ask her if she wants sugar in her coffee. They're going to know that unique part of her, and it's just going to make her day a little better. Um, I had a family member who was in hospice recently who um, loved music, particularly hard rock and roll. And when I was talking with her husband about playing music, I said, you know, it's really important you're bringing in ACDC and KISS, not the music you might typically think of playing in hospice, but we knew that's what she wanted, not Beethoven and Mozart. So just knowing that is really, really important. Um, The other thing about a preferences map that I think we um, can use More appropriately is if you know what someone likes and dislikes, you can use that as a reward or reinforcement for when somebody is um, having to engage in something they don't want to do. When my father was in skilled nursing, like many people, he hated being showered. You know, it's not a very pleasant experience to have people you don't know showering you and on a schedule that may fit their needs, but not your needs. So one of the things that I did was say to my father, when you finish your shower, you can have a cup of Budweiser beer. Small thing, but it really enabled him to get through the humiliation and the trauma of having a shower where someone else was showered him. Again, a small thing, but I I believe it really did enhance the quality of his life. Well, and that's not so different from anyone else. It, okay, go get a shot, and then you're going to get an ice cream. Yeah, exactly. 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 It's not a it's not a bribe. It's a way of recognizing that this is something you don't want to do. You don't like it. So how can we pair it with something that you do like and make it, if not a pleasant experience, at least a more tolerable experience because you have some control over it and you have something to look forward to. and you have something to look forward to yeah 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 this is all really really good information you know i'm sitting here thinking i'm listening to all this and thinking oh my i wish i had known all of this (laughs) you know several years ago with my mom um because it is really important to have this information. And I'm also thinking that some hospitals, as I, as I understand, they certainly can't do a full blown preference map or, or, you know, any of this, but I think there are some places that are be, beginning to make a, an effort yes. to recognize the individuality yes. of someone and their preferences yes. and how wonderful to have that. Yes, absolutely. My, my experience with, with all medical facilities is that the people are very good there and very caring, but it is so easy to get caught up in the systems centered approach and the funding approach that you forget that it's not a dementia patient. It's not an Alzheimer's patient. It's not a stroke patient. It is a person who has a history and a story and, and so many unique preferences and so many strengths, even while there's a lot of deficits. So really, just, just to kind of summarize, I, I think person-centered planning can be used in, in small but very significant ways to increase a family member's quality of life and their feelings of control and garner respect for them. 
I think for us as um, adult child caregivers, it's also a way that we can encourage change in facilities that care for our aging parents. So that by looking at one map, one person, one discussion at a time, we can really begin to move from a medical model and a systems model to a more person-centered model. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and how wonderful it would be if that became really a practice across the board. Yeah. 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 Jane, this has been excellent and just so important and such such meaningful information. And and like you're saying, there are little things that can be done and there are big things that can be done. Um, uh, things that can be done by family members and things that can be done by highly trained professionals. Mm -hmm. So thank you for all of this. We also want to thank you. Oh, absolutely. We need to come up with another one. We need to have you back. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you to our listeners. We hope this podcast has been helpful and that you will share it with others you believe may benefit. Before we end, we certainly want to thank Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, our sponsor for this podcast and all of our podcasts. We are indeed grateful for their support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of our Caregiver Community podcast. I think this makes maybe number 56, 57, somewhere in there. Uh, see what see what we started all those years ago, Jane? <laughs> but you can find more of our Caregiver Community podcast on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts. You can also find podcasts on our website, www.acapcommunity.org. But while you're on our site, on our ACAP site, we do hope that you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP and our educational programs and our local chapters. And if there are other topics you'd like for us to address as a podcast, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our age, background, education, career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one, who needs the help, caring for, and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important. So please care well for your loved ones, but also remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.